Let's open our Bibles tonight to uh, Romans chapter 8. I know this has been called an overview, but it's sort of hardly become that the last few weeks. I think we were able to overview three verses last study, and hopefully we'll finish chapter 8. But this is, this is lofty stuff. We all know that it's easier to travel by day than it is to travel by night simply because navigation is just more complicated without light. And so we have lights on our cars and we light up parking lots at night so that you can navigate safely. Ships depend upon lights in harbors to navigate safely through the channels. Airplanes depend upon the lights of the airport runway to navigate, unless they fly by instruments, and even then they depend upon the light bulbs in the instruments to be able to read them at night. Light is essential to see where we're going. I was doing, among other things, this weekend, besides preaching and playing some music with a band in Sacramento, doing an art show on the photography that I've done from Israel at a gallery in Sacramento, and I was asked about light and how light changes perspective. And artists and photographers know how beautiful light is, especially early in the morning or late in the afternoon, what they call the golden hour. Because when, when light is low in the afternoon, shadows are pronounced, objects are separated. Uh, you can see things in relief a lot better than flat light. For instance, if you were to view the Sandia Mountains with backlight from the west, and you look at it, it looks like it's just a flat mountain. If you get closer to the mountain, or you get the right kind of light, you see that it's not just one flat, steep mountain, that it has slope to it, and there are valleys with other peaks that are connected to it. There's distance between it, and the light helps reveal that. It's perspective. Perspective changes everything. And in spiritual things, in life, so often we lose perspective. We lose the basic navigating lights of the Bible, of the truths of God, and that's why we're so overwhelmed with our problems. We just forget stuff, basic stuff. And so we need perspective. Romans 8.28 provided for us last time great, great perspective. They're like firm lights to navigate by. And we know that in all things God works together for the good for those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. We examined that among three verses, two others besides that. But perspective does change the way you live your life. An example, there's a girl in college. She was failing one of her classes she needed extra money, and she knew that for, for her to just tell her parents that would be a problem. They, they probably wouldn't understand. So she wrote this letter. Dear Mom and Dad, thought I'd drop you a note to clue you in on my plans. I've fallen in love with a guy named Jim. He quit high school after 11th grade to get married. About a year later, he got a divorce. We've been going steady now for two months and plan to get married in the fall. Until then, I've decided to move into his apartment. I think I might be pregnant. At any rate, I've dropped out of school last week, though I'd like to finish college sometime in the future. Signed her name at the bottom. And then put an arrow for them to turn over to the other side of the page. And on the back of the page, she wrote, Dear Mom and Dad, I just wanted you to know that everything I've written so far in this letter is false None of it is true, but, Mom and Dad, it is true I got a C in French and flunked math. And it is true I'm going to need some more money for my tuition payments, signed your daughter. She's a wise girl. Getting a C and flunking and needing money would be considered bad news, but when you put it in perspective, of being pregnant and quitting college, it's like, that's good news. How much money do you need? <laughs> now, I know that's called manipulation, but it's still, in her case, very, very wise the way she, by the light of perspective, put one problem next to the other problem. 
Oh, how often we cannot see the forest for the trees. We lose the scope of the plan of God. We get so overwhelmed by our little world, by our little problems, that we don't see especially God's whole scope. Now, Paul has given us great lights in chapter 8, verse 28, to navigate by, but he gives us further ones in the next few verses. He takes us to the very top of the mountain peak to see it all, the panorama, you might say, of salvation. It's like going to the top of the uh, World Trade Center or the Empire State Building to look at Manhattan. It's like going to the top of the Eiffel Tower to navigate Paris. It's like taking the tram to the top of the Sandias to get the whole layout of this part of the state. He takes us to the loftiest peaks and lets us see in perspective God's past, present, and future plan so that we don't get overwhelmed. It's beautiful stuff. I heard about a little kid who was putting together a puzzle, and he got so frustrated because, you know, he saw the pieces of the puzzle. Some were small, some were large, some were dark, some were light, and he didn't know how to put them all together, and he finally gave up in frustration. Dad took the puzzle. In five minutes, he had it together. And the kid said, not fair. How'd you do it? He said, because all the while I saw the picture in the puzzle, you only saw the pieces. We fail so often to get the full picture. We just see the little pieces. This is my little piece, my little neck of the woods, my little world, my little problems, my little trials. And so Paul says, you know, I think we need to step back and get the full, broad-based forest and get out of the trees for just a minute and see the plan of God, the scope of salvation. So he does that in the next few verses. Verse 28 is from our point of view. The next few verses are from God's point of view. Truth from God's vantage point. Now, a warning comes. Whenever you look at truth from God's vantage point, it's difficult. It's so lofty. In fact... Who are we to assume that we can understand it in totality? God is infinite. You and I are finite. Here we are, puny little minds compared to God in perspective, and we're going to feed on truth from God's perspective. We're going to get the revelation of how God chose us in the past, called us in the present, will glorify us in the future. And sometimes... I don't know about you, but when I analyze truths like this, I feel like I'm blowing a fuse. It's just like I'm studying it, I'm trying to get it, and I think I just got it, and then a little breakdown happens. It's sort of like trying to put the Pacific Ocean in a Starbucks coffee mug. You can't contain it. Too small of a container. Too vast of a subject. And so just a warning as we go through this. There are different positions on some of these things we're going to talk about. They're important enough to talk about. They're important enough, in fact, to memorize. But this is truth from God's vantage point. Four great mountain peaks, beginning in verse 29, are shown. You know how when you go to the southeast part of our town, you have a, an area called Four Hills because there's four peaks? You might want to think of those four peaks in the next two verses, verse 29 and 30. These are four mountain peaks of your salvation. For whom he did foreknow, verse 29, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, he also called whom he called, those he also justified whom he justified, those he also glorified. The first mountain peak is found in verse 29. And we're going to take these verses slowly like the ones last week. The first mountain peak, let's label it predestination. Predestination. That means that God, in advance, independent of you, but knowing all about you in advance, before you were born, picked you, chose you. Marked you out. The word predestinate means to mark something beforehand or to choose in advance. Now, can you see already that we're having difficulty being finite, trying to grasp something infinite, that infinite God chose us before we were ever around? 
predestined us. To do what? To be conformed into the image of his son. That's the, the goal that God the Father has for your life. To shape your personality so that when, when people look at you, they say, you know, I see Jesus in that person. You say, oh, that's too lofty of a goal for me. No, it's not. They may not see Jesus in totality, and, and people will never see Jesus until in totality until you're in heaven. But it's a process, and that's the goal of God. It begins, not now, it began before you were born. He predestined you. It says, he foreknew, verse 29, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Imagine the 12 disciples, how stunned they were when they said to Jesus, you know, we've left lands and we've left relatives and we've given up a lot to follow you. They made deliberate choices to follow Jesus Christ. But imagine how stunned they were when Jesus said, hey, guess what? You didn't choose me. But I chose you and I ordained you that you should bring forth fruit. What do you mean you didn't choose me? I specifically remember the day when you said, follow me, and I left everything and followed. I chose to follow you. Yes, you did choose me in that sense, but it's only because I chose you and ordained you. And so we're getting the hint of predestination. God is omnipotent. You know what that means? All-powerful. He can do anything. God is omniscient, which means... He knows everything. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere present. That's a lot of omnis. And there's more to describe him. That's just a few, of, a few omnis. Because the nature of God is that he knows everything, can do anything, and is everywhere present, he can predestine you. Because he knows everything, absolutely everything in advance. So he can orchestrate events. Listen carefully. He can orchestrate events in advance, still allowing for your free choice. You say, well, how does that work? I don't totally exactly know. But let me give you an example. The death of Jesus Christ, God held people responsible for collaborating together against Jesus Christ, yet it was part of God's plan. In Acts chapter 4, they're accused by the Sanhedrin, the disciples gather together and they pray and listen to their prayer. Here's an excerpt beginning in verse 27, then 28 of Acts 4. Against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. They, by their own choice, did something. It was determined beforehand to be done. Now, when it comes to your salvation, listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. When did God pick you? Was it when he saw you were coming close to Jesus Christ? You had that spiritual soft spot. And when he saw that, he said, oh, look. Look at that person. He's interested in me. Now I choose him. Did God choose you when you said, okay, Lord, come into my heart? Did God pick you when you decided to surrender your life to a full time of service to him? No. Before you were born, before your parents were born, before anybody was born, it says before the foundation of the world. That is, before God ever flung the Milky Way across the sky and all of the other hundred billion galaxies, God had you in mind. When did salvation begin? Way, way back in the heart and the mind of God before the foundation of the earth. He chose you before you were born. I love what Spurgeon used to say. He used to say, God certainly chose me before I came into the world. He never would have picked me after I came into the world. <laughs> Predestined. That's where it all begins. Now, here's the catch. 
God knows everyone he's predestined. We don't. Now, you can have your little categories and your little groups, and you can say, well, I'm a Calvinist, and you know, it's only those that God selects. You know, we can't do mass evangelism. In fact, it, was, it discouraged me when Billy Graham told me that Martin Lloyd-Jones in London refused to be a part of his crusades because he gave an altar call to people because he was a staunch Calvinist. One time, a strict Calvinist, by the way, if you don't know what Calvinism believes, it, it really it, it would belabor the point and really probably depress us all if I went into it at this point. But you'll get the drift as I tell you the conversation. The strict Calvinists walk up to Charles Spurgeon after a sermon that he preached in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And he was preaching the gospel. And he said, you know, you're preaching the gospel to some people who are not predestined to be saved. Spurgeon smiled and said, you know, you're probably right. Do me a favor then. Put a yellow X on the back of everyone who is predestined to be saved and I'll preach only to them. In other words, who knows? Only God knows. And so we're to preach the gospel to all creation, every creature, the Lord Jesus told us. And so Spurgeon was fond of praying, Lord, I pray that you save all the elect and then elect some more. I think when it comes to this issue, because we're dealing with this lofty subject in the mind of God, impossible to totally grasp, Rather than polarize into little groups, I think that we should harmonize. Both God's sovereignty in election and man's free will are seen as both truths held in tension throughout the New Testament. Both of them are true. We can't polarize. Man doesn't just sit back and have God irresistibly snatch them without their free will. Uh, nor is the opposite true, where we grope hopelessly to find a hidden God all of our lives. The truth is God selects and we respond. It's like a, a drowning man and somebody throwing a rope to the drowning man. You can throw a rope to him and that doesn't save him. He's got to grab it. Neither does him flailing his arms save him necessarily. Just because he wants to be helped, you need to have someone on the other end throwing the rope. And so God throws the rope. Man has to respond by grabbing the rope. And both truths are seen together. God, by election, draws people to his son, Jesus Christ. Man, by his own choice, responds and says yes to Jesus Christ. And all of it was predestined. Can I figure it out? No. Can I understand it? Not totally. But I'll tell you what, I'm real happy about it. I rejoice in it. And so I'll preach the gospel to the world, trusting that God will do the rest. Now, this does create a problem. We can't skate away from this problem this easy because the follow-up question is this. Okay, great. I'm predestined to be saved. Great. I'm happy. I rejoice. But if, if some people are predestined to be saved, then what about the people who are lost? Are they predestined to be lost, to be damned forever? Is there no hope for them? While the Bible says a lot about God predestining everyone saved, it says nothing about predestining the damned. It says nothing about that. We don't know who those who are saved, uh, just like we don't know who's going to say no. God does because God has precognition. You may want to remember that term, foreknowledge. He knows everything in advance. He knows what our response will be. We'll get to that in just a moment. That's really the key. But this does pose a problem because uh, some will say, okay, if God predestines everybody, then, then why bother worrying about world evangelism? Why bother praying? Why bother getting involved? Why bother going or sending missionaries? If they're going to be saved, they're going to be saved. Simply put, because there's another mountain peak we're just about to get to, not only the mountain peak of predestination, but there's the mountain peak of calling. And just as God ordains the end, which is salvation, God ordains the means to the end, which is calling. Be it a tract, a sermon, even Christian TV has been known to do things. So God can use anything. The ends as well as the means are predestined. Notice a key factor in that verse. Whom he foreknew, foreknowledge is a key factor. 
the Greek word prognosko. If you ever gone to a doctor and he says the prognosis is good or the prognosis is not good. Our term prognosis means I predict the course of the disease. God has the ability to prognosticate. That's not a good guess. That is to know in advance what's going to happen and speak it into existence as if it has already happened. The proof of that is prophecy. You notice how much prophecy in the Old Testament is written in past tense, though it has not happened yet? That's the foreknowledge of God. Now, that's a tremendous advantage to be able to think with foreknowledge. It's a tremendous disadvantage for me not to be able to think with foreknowledge. So here am I, a a creature, dealing with predestination, talking about the ultimate being God who can think and know everything in advance. He has precognition, foreknowledge, I don't. I don't know what the weather is going to be like tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen in the war in Kosovo. I don't know who's going to win the election that's coming up. I mean, I could tell you who I'd like not to win, but I can't tell you who is going to win. We make predictions based not on foreknowledge, but on past knowledge. If somebody bets on a horse in a horse race, I'm not advocating it, but if if you were to do it, you do it based on past knowledge, the past history of that animal, the past performance. And based upon the past, you make a hopefully a good guess. Even the weather is based on past knowledge, not foreknowledge. How many times have they predicted the weather only to be wrong? It'll be warm and sunny tomorrow and you get your umbrella out because it's hailing sideways. (laughs) It's based on certain observable patterns but not foreknowledge. God has foreknowledge. David said, Lord, Psalm 139, you have searched me. You've known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. But get this. You know my thoughts from afar. That is, you know what I'm going to think way before I think it. And then he said, oh, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. The sooner you come to that, realization, the better off you'll be. You cannot attain to God's knowledge. So as much as you try to package theologically these things and think, I've got a grasp on them, it just shows how puny our knowledge is if we make that assertion. God has foreknowledge. He knows everything in advance. So much so that in Psalm 90 it says, our lives are spent as a tale that has been told. In other words, to God, your life is a rerun. God is not finding out new things about you. You don't do something and God goes, Wow! Well, that's, I just learned something today. We live our lives, we spend our lives as a tale that has been told. So perhaps, though it's crude, the best way to think of all this is a rerun. You watch a football game. You see the outcome. You take your friends and you all sit around and put in the videotape and you say, I choose this team to make a touchdown and this will be the final score. Now they can say, it's not fair. All they want. It's fair to you because you have seen it already in advance. They haven't. God knows what our response will be. God knows what the human disposition will be at the time. God knowing everything in advance, being omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, can also predestine. Look in verse 30. Second mountain peak, the mountain peak of our calling. This is now sort of present tense. Salvation begins way back when in the heart of God. But moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. If you look back in verse 28, He speaks about those who are the called according to his purpose. And if you fit that description, you are called by God. You are the called according to his purpose. Then all things work together for you. Now from a divine perspective, beginning in verse 21, God predestined you. Then God called you. 
Called is present tense. Some of you heard a message by an evangelist. Some of you heard a sermon here at Calvary. Some of you responded to a friend witnessing to you or read a book or a track or a booklet. Whatever the means was is how God called you. He ordained the end, salvation, by predestination. He ordained the means via the calling. Notice how often Jesus used the word come. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. To the disciples, follow me, he said a few different times. To others, leave it, follow me. So much so that one theologian said God's favorite word is come. He's inviting people. He's calling people to come to himself. You say, well, now how can God predestine me in advance and then call me in the present? And all of that is done in the mind and the heart of God before I was ever born. And he sets up the means for that. And I still retain my ability to choose. How can that be free choice? We have difficulty with that. Again, I think the answer is found in the word foreknowledge, but we won't explore that anymore. Let's say you're walking down a hallway and you're looking at different signs on doors and you find an interesting sign that says, whosoever will, let him come. You go, hmm. Whosoever will, let him come. That's an invitation. It's an invitation that I must respond to if I choose to. So I choose to. It's my personal choice, my volition to open the door. So I open the door. As soon as I open the door, by my own choice, nobody forced me, I find before me in the room a table, several place settings, and my name on a plate, as if They've been waiting for me all along. It says on a nice little elegant nameplate, skip. I go, that's wild. And then the door suddenly shuts behind me. Boom. And I look back and there's a sign on the inside of the door this time that says, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. It sounds like an (laughs) X-file. Wait a minute. Whosoever will let him come, I made that choice. Lord, we left everything to follow you. You guys didn't choose me, but I chose you and ordained you. One is viewing it from the human standpoint. One is viewing it from the divine standpoint. One is viewing it from the earth. All things work together for good. Then Paul says, let's get up on the mountain peak and look over it all. Before you were ever born, before anything was ever created, God predestined you because he foreknew. And based on foreknowledge came predestination. And with predestination came God's calling. Those he predestined, those he also called. God predestines, somebody once said, God predestines every man to be saved. The devil predestines every man to be damned. And man has the casting vote. Which will you choose? Salvation or not? Let's move on. We'll expand upon this as we go. Verse 30 also has a third mountain peak. Moreover, whom he predestined, Those he also called, that's the second one, whom he called, these he also justified. That's the third mountain peak. We looked at that back in chapter 5. This is how it works. Follow the progress. Before you were born, God picked you. He said, I want that person on my team. He chose you. You responded volitionally by your choice. The moment you did, he freely justified you. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 24, being justified freely by His grace. Key factor. God predestined you freely by His grace, not based upon anything you did. You weren't around to do anything. Then He called you freely by His grace, and once you responded to it, He justified you freely by His grace, and you'll be in heaven glorified freely by His grace. You get the picture. It's all freely by His grace. Without a cause, it means without a cause. That is the trouble. That is the reason some of us have trouble with salvation. Because God has given it freely without a cause. And we like to think, well, there was some cause that God chose me. 
There's some good thing he saw in me, some great, wonderful fire burning that made God say, oh, I'll choose him. No, freely, without a cause. In predestination, in calling, in justification, and finally, in glorification. Which means this, everyone God chooses will finish. A hundred percent. Those that God picks, God picks to finish, and the end is glorification. The entire scope of your salvation from beginning to end lies in the infinite choice and initiative of God. And Jesus said, those the Father has given me, I don't lose any. I love that. Okay, pretty lofty stuff, isn't it? It boggles the mind while it comforts the soul. It's comforting to think, oh, God picked me before the world was ever made, and then he called me and, and set up the means by which I would be saved, and then the moment I said yes to him, he said, you're acquitted, I'm going to treat you as if you've never sinned. Though you're not perfect, you're justified. A declaration by God is made. I'm comforted by that. To try to explain all that, I may lose my mind. To try to explain it away, I may lose my soul. So I believe it. Do I apprehend it? Do I understand it all? No, because I'm the Starbucks coffee cup trying to put the Pacific Ocean in it. I reach a point where I go, okay, I trust. You see, election is a doctrine I'm called to believe. Evangelism is a command I'm called to obey. Both are true. God respects free choice. God selects in advance. Now, you may wonder at God's choice. You may look around at some and go, huh, chosen by God. <laughs> A lot of people have asked that question as they've seen me. Well, Lord, why, why did you choose him? What did you see in him? You know, sometimes we may look at a couple and we think, what did she ever see in him anyway? Or a, a player on, a, on an athletic sports team and they, they fumble the ball or they have a bad season. Why did they pick that guy anyway? And we may wonder at the choice of God. We may analyze the choice of God, but there comes a point when we should just enjoy the choice of God because he chose you. This does not upset me that God predestined people. This thrills me, man. He picked me. I'm on the team. I'm on the winning team. Uh, this has never been a, a real stumbling block for me. I've never gotten frustrated and angry. It's just, hey, Lord, thank you. I'm on the team. I remember when I was accepted by UCLA for a, a radiology program. Out of hundreds of students, they selected 12. I didn't say, no, wait a minute. This isn't fair. Hey, thank you. I enjoy it. I receive it. Let's move on to the fourth peak, glorification. Moreover, whom he predestined, again, verse 30, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. One writer called this the most daring anticipation of faith in the entire New Testament. Because he's speaking about something future. Are you glorified right now? I just have to ask your husband or wife. They'd say, oh no, oh no. <laughs> or your parents or children, oh no. Yet notice it's in past tense. It's a future event, the resurrection of our body, the future glory of heaven. But it's written about, once again, from the perspective of God. It's as if it's done, glorified, past tense as if it's over with. Because in the scope of God, from the mountain peak, you get the whole vantage from beginning to end. From predestination to glorification, there it all is. God sees it in one fell swoop, the plan of salvation. Now Paul here is speaking about the future glory, heaven, the resurrection of my body. The resurrection of my body, a key doctrine, a key thing to believe in the New Testament. I love what Paul, the way he put it in uh, Philippians when he said, he will transform my lowly body and make it like his own glorious body. Glorification. Look back at verse 18. 
because this is all in part of this context. We don't want to separate it. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time or age are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The plan of salvation for you includes future glorification. Now that's, that's good news to all of us. Because you know, how much time do we spend trying to look better? Trying to get rid of the wrinkles, you know, stretching it way back, you know, and, or coloring it and making it look younger. And, but always losing the battle. People look and they don't go, color their hair, don't they? <laughs> hey, big deal. You know when you're going to look really good? I'm not saying you look bad. Please understand. <laughs> you all look beautiful. But you're really going to look good on the other side. When you're glorified. The psalmist said in Psalm 16, I will be satisfied when I awaken his likeness. Glorification. I mean, down here we're talking crummy. Up there we're talking glory. And yet it's spoken about here as past tense. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, the body is sown in corruption, it's raised in incorruption. It's sown in mortality, it is raised in immortality. Even the healthiest body wears out. It deteriorates. And after you die, it will deteriorate very rapidly. As Lazarus, who was dead after four days, and he, Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha goes, oh, Lord, by now he stinketh. This thing deteriorates quickly. But it will be raised in incorruption, in glorification, in immortality. It'll give way to the new model. I've always loved the... Um, epitaph, I brought it tonight, that's on Benjamin Franklin's tombstone in Philadelphia. It says, the body of Benjamin Franklin, printer, like the covering of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of all its lettering and gilding, lies here, food for worms. But the work will not be lost, for it will appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, revised and corrected by the author. One day this body will be absolutely transformed, whether it's at the rapture of the church or it's long after we're dead and you hear the trumpet call of God and there'll be that instant transformation and instant glorification. Okay, now, verse 31. Giving that, those verses as background, Paul asked five important questions. You know, he's talking about, hey, we're suffering now. This is the present evil age. But think about God's full scope of salvation from your point of view, verse 28, from God's point of view, verse 29 and 30, based on that, five questions. First of all, what shall we say to these things? What things? Things in verse 29 and 30, predestination, calling, justification, the fact that he says you're glorified even though you're not yet, but that's part of the plan. What shall you say to these things? In other words, what will your response be to the plan of God? Do you ever ask yourself that? Do you ever, when you read a, a passage of Scripture or hear a Bible study, you should ask this question, what is my response to these truths now? When you hear this stuff about God's plan for you, are you indifferent to it? Some of you are. Are you enthusiastic about it? Some of you are. Do some of you say, yeah, I like it as long as it agrees with my plans and my lifestyle? Some of you are in that camp. I'll tell you what your response ought to be. Oh, thank you, Lord. It's so awesome, Lord. It should be natural for us to respond to these lofty truths with humble adoration and praise. Anything short of that is not a proper response. Thanking God, glorifying God, for his plan. I read a story about a simple farmer, lived way out in the Thule's, was visited by a relative of his who lived in the big sophisticated city, was very highly educated. This farmer was uneducated, very simple guy, and at dinner time he bowed his head and thanked God 
for his food, prayed. And his sophisticated, unbelieving relative said, how old-fashioned to pray and give thanks before meals. How unenlightened. And the farmer said, you're right, it is old-fashioned, but you'd be happy to know there are some on this farm who do not pray, do not give thanks. And the sophisticated city relative said, oh, so enlightenment has finally come to the farm. Say, who are these wise ones? The farmer said, my pigs. Well, that may be a proper response for pigs, but not for, not for people. Certainly not for God's people. What shall we say to these things? It's a question of what is our response to these lofty mountain peaks of God's truth. Do you remember when God promises David that God's going to build him a, a, a dynasty, a house? You know, he, David said, Lord, I'm going to build you a house. And God says, no, you're not going to build me a house. Your son's going to build me a house. Your hands are full of blood. But you know, David, I'm going to build you a house made out of people, a dynasty, the Davidic rule. I'm going to build you a house, and I'm going to have some one of your relatives occupy the throne and reign in righteousness forever and ever. Speaking, of course, ultimately of Christ. And David said, Lord, you've taken me from the sheepfold. You've taken me from humble beginnings. You've made me a king in Israel, and then you've blessed my life, and now you speak about building me a future dynasty? Oh, Lord, what can I say? You know, just there are no words to express my thanks. What shall we say to these things is the first question. Look at the second question, same verse. If God is for us, who can be against us? Some people think God is against them. You know, I bet some of you, even tonight, still think God is making a list and checking it twice, like Santa Claus. God has something against you, and he's just waiting for you to trip and go, ah, I saw that little failure. Mm -mm. God is for you. He's not against you. God knows our frame that we are but dust. Now, there is somebody who is against you. Satan's against you. Satan hates your guts. Satan would love you to fall. Satan would love you to not trust God. All of Satan's minions, the demons, are against you. The world of unbelievers who is opposed to the Christian truth is against you. The flesh, the world, it's all against you. But if God is for you, who can be against us? Hey, listen, whoever's against us, who cares if God is for us? Martin Luther had it right when he said, With God, one is a majority. Oh, the devil's against me. So what? Oh, well, we've got to go out and cast demons out of everything. Oh, listen. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You don't have to worry about all that nonsense. Whoever is against you, who cares? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know who believed that? Gideon. He took 300 men against 135,000 Midianites because he believed if God is for me, who can be against me? Beautiful, beautiful truth. Another story that I came across years ago. A young preacher was candidating to be a pastor in a church. And in those days, as in these days in many churches, they have to come and give a sermon before the congregation. They're graded. And so after his sermon was preached, they turned him down. And this young preacher wired his father. Of course, this is the day before television phone and etc. He wired his father. One word rejected. His father quickly wired him back and finished the sentence. Rejected on earth, accepted in heaven. God is for you. Who can be against you? Who cares? Verse 32 is an amplification of that thought. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things. This is not really another question as it's part of that verse 31 question. If God is for you, who can be against us? It's the argument from greater to lesser. If God demonstrated the ultimate form of his love in giving you his prize, his son, how will he not with him freely give us all things? If God was willing to spare not his son, 
and make sure that his son died for you so that you might be saved, do you think God is going to stop taking care of you? Anything other than his son is less than that. If he gave you his best, he'll give you everything else that you need. Perhaps you've seen the saying, I asked God how much he loved me. I asked Jesus how much he loved me. And he stretched out his arms and said this much. And then he died. That's how much he loved you. Enough to stretch out his arms on a cross and die. And if God would allow his son to come and do that, how shall he not, argument from greater to lesser, freely give us all things. All things. What do you need tonight? Strength? Money to pay your rent? Direction in life? You think God's going to say, no. I'm just going to just kind of let, let you dangle now and just kind of wither out there. Dwight L. Moody said something beautiful. He said, what if you walked into a jewelry store, the best jewelry store in your city, and the guy behind the counter said, hey, I'm glad you came in. I've got something for you. Took out his most expensive diamond, most valuable diamond, and gave it to you freely. He said, would you be embarrassed to ask him for some brown wrapping paper to take it home in? If that is the most valuable, anything less is less, certainly he'd give it to you. If he didn't spare his only son, how shall he not freely give us all things? And so here we are hesitating, wondering, oh God, I have something to ask you, and you know, I, 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 it's too big. Oh, maybe I shouldn't. He gave you his son. So argument from greater to lesser. Third question, verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who charges you with mistakes and failures? Satan, he's the accuser of the brethren. When God said to Satan, have you seen Job, my servant, a man who is perfect or complete? He hates evil. He loves righteousness. Satan accused him. Does Job serve you for nothing? He's mercenary in his service, God. He only serves you because you bless him. Take away his blessings, he'll curse you to his, your face. There he is accusing Job. Then Zechariah saw the vision of Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan at his right side, accusing him before God. He's called the accuser of the brethren in Revelation chapter 12. But while Satan accuses, it says God justifies. So, next time you feel like you're being accused by the devil, turn the tables on him. You know how to do that? Confess your sin. Admit it. Yeah. I'm a sinner. I've blown it in that area. That's another thing I must leave in the hands of God. Don't try to hide it. Well, let me make an excuse for it. No, I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. Martin Luther, who said he was often accused by the devil. In fact, Luther said that Satan actually appeared to him on several occasions. On one occasion, he said, You don't scare me because I flee to the grace of God wherein lies my only hope. Turn the tables on him. Yeah, admit you're a sinner. Ask God's cleansing. Fourth question, verse 34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Is God condemning you? You know what a liberating day it is when you really, truly come to grips with the fact that God isn't frowning at you? That God is not a heavenly patrol officer, a celestial uh, vice principal. I don't know about you, but the principal in my high school, nothing wrong with him. It was the vice principal that gave us all a hassle. And some people think of God as their high school vice principal. Oh, here he comes. Here's God again. Oh, man, I'm in trouble. What does the first verse say? There is therefore now no condemnation. God doesn't condemn. In fact, what does it say here? He died. He rose, and he's rooting for me. He's interceding for me. He's on my side. He is my heavenly defense attorney. He's my advocate. Well, I love the fact that Jesus is my attorney. Now, what if you had a defense attorney that went to the judge and said, Judge, my uh, client's a jerk. Book him. <laughs> Thanks. What's the bad news? Now, the good news is Jesus Christ, who paid your penalty, is also interceding for you. He's your defense attorney before God. So, 
What do we say to these things? How can we lose? The Father is for us. He chose us in advance, called us in the presence, will glorify us in the future. The Holy Spirit intercedes with groanings that cannot be uttered. Verse 26, we covered that last week. Jesus Christ died, rose, and is interceding for us. The whole Trinity is rooting for you. Man, how can you lose? If anything should cause you to go, ah, I can rest. It's these lofty mountain peaks of Scripture. Verse 35, we're making it to a close now. Fifth question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? A better translation than who is what, because there's a list not of persons, but of things, activities. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? The word separate, interesting word, karizo in Greek, translated in most other places, divorce, as a man or a husband, a wife or a husband divorcing a spouse. In the root word, it means uh, space, a separation or space or distance. So a better translation would be this. Can anything put a distance between Jesus' love for you? Or is there anything that can stop Jesus Christ from loving me? I hope when you hear that God loves you, something is touched in your heart. I hope you don't get bored with hearing that. A postgraduate seminary class said to a visiting eminent theologian, what is the greatest truth in all of your studies you've ever come across? He said, it is this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Uh, he had it right. What can separate us from the love of God? Tribulation or general adversity? Do you think when you go through a trial it means God doesn't love you? No, it could mean that God is cleaning you up. He's honing you. He's making you better, pruning you. Next on the list, distress. The word means narrow, confined, a cramped place. Some of you, right now in your life, feel like you're confined. Some people may be listening to this live while they're in a hospital bed or at home, confined because of an ailment. They're in a confined place, distress. Some of you think your job is confining. Some of you think a relationship you're in is too confining. That doesn't separate you from the love of God. Ask Joseph. He was in prison. Daniel, Paul, and Silas. They never thought, God didn't love me anymore. I'm in confinement. Next on the list, persecution. Has persecution always been the lot of God's people? Affirmative. Affirmative. The world will hate you, said Jesus. It's always been the lot of God's people for the church from the very beginning. Yet, Jesus said, oh, how happy, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Because you're in good company. Moses was persecuted, Elijah was persecuted, Paul and Silas, etc. Verse 36, for, or as it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. He's simply quoting Psalm 44 to let you know, just like the sons of Korah who wrote that psalm, persecution has come along from the very beginning. You're in good company. If you're being hassled tonight or at work because you're a believer, great company to be in. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you, said Jesus. And did you know that the early church historians, when writing of so many of the martyrs, said that they would march to their deaths as if it were an honor. When Ignatius was about to be burned in 110 AD, or he was about to be killed, he said, nearer the sword than nearer God to my life. Nearer the beasts to slay me, nearer to the very throne of God. Didn't separate us from the love of God. Verse 37. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What a truth. More than conquerors. It's a compound word. Huper nikao is the Greek translated super conquerors. 
hyper-conquerors, over-conquerors. It's, it's when you conquer and you've got energy left over. It's like you've got a souped-up V8 engine in your car and you're going 80 miles an hour, but you've got a big power band besides that. You've got a lot of power left over. A conqueror is someone who rejoices when the battle is over. A super-conqueror is somebody who rejoices in the midst of the battle. Because he's speaking to people who are facing this stuff. Hey, we're more than conquerors. Huper nikao. Hyper-conquerors. Power left over. An example would be a story that I read about a man who was visiting a church back east. The whole congregation was singing the hallelujah chorus, and his eye caught one little old crumpled arthritic woman, bent hands, barely able to stretch, and she stretched them toward the heavens and sang the hallelujah chorus. More than conquerors. Doesn't separate her from the love of God. Verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see what Paul's doing? It's like he's got the binoculars on and he's searching through the whole universe to see if there's anything at all that could separate the love of God from God's people. He looks at life and all of the distress and hardship. Nope, nothing there. Looks at death. Oh, no, death doesn't separate us. It draws us closer. Looks to the angelic world, the demonic world, principalities, powers. Oh, no. God created them. They can't separate us. They can accuse us, but they can't separate us. Then he says, verse 39, nor height, nor depth, nor any... These are uh, astrological terms. Just want to throw that out at you. They speak about a star being at its zenith or a star being at its low point because the ancients in their superstitions used to say that when a star is at its peak, it exerts the greatest influence. When a star is at its lowest spot, it does not exert influence. And so what Paul is simply saying is the stars and all of the astrological signs, they can't hurt you. They can't touch you. God created the stars. Nothing can separate you. In other words, you can't say, oh, well, I'm a Taurus, and this month doesn't look good. <laughs> Baloney. Paganism. God created the stars. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Quit reading these astrological charts. Read the love charts of God in the New Testament. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And then notice how he kind of ends this, as if he may, may have just missed something or any other created thing. So, back to the question, what do we say then? We say, ah, oh, thank you, Lord. Awesome. That's your salvation from God's perspective that demands that kind of a response. Nothing can separate you. Notice how it closes. The love of God, which is what? In Christ Jesus. Isn't that where chapter 8 began? In Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no separation now to those who are in Christ Jesus. If there's any chapter that should cause you to rest in the finality and the grandeur and the keeping power of God in salvation, it's chapter 8. Okay. We have managed in 143,000 weeks to cover chapter 1 through 8 of the book of Romans. <laughs> Little summary review. The theme has been the gospel. The gospel of God reveals the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is a free gift as opposed to the arrogance of man which says, I'll work my way to God by my own goodness. And so in chapters 1 through 3, all man is considered condemned and unrighteous, whether you're Jew, Gentile, a moralist, an immoralist, an amoralist, whatever. In chapter 4 and 5, you are considered righteous if you believe in Jesus Christ, you're justified. In chapter 6 through 8, you become, through the process of God making you this way, sanctification, you become holy.
and you're more than conquerors.